Welcome back to the Ginsburg Tapes. I'm your host, Lauren Moxley Beatty. I'm speaking to you at this moment in September 2020, following the news of Justice Ginsburg's passing. This is a podcast about Ginsburg's career as a lawyer and her successful advocacy before the all-male Supreme Court in finding a home for gender equality in the U.S. Constitution. I'm re-releasing all of the episodes in the coming days in honor of Ginsburg's memory. Today's episode, Not a Pedestal But a Cage, covers Ginsburg's favorite case of her entire career. In this case, Ginsburg represents a man named Stephen Weisenfeld, and Ginsburg believed that Stephen's case allowed her to drive home the point that certain laws that purport to benefit women actually perpetuate and reinforce stereotypes about men and women that end up holding everyone back. And I don't think I've mentioned this on the podcast, but I've been in touch with the Weissenfeld family after making this episode. Jason Paul, the baby in this case, who's no longer a baby, sent me the following note from his dad, Stephen Weissenfeld, along with a photo that I'll put up on the TGT Instagram and Twitter. Stephen said, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a phenomenal, very caring, and gracious person, and a brilliant, hardworking American hero, all for the good of this country and all of the people within it. She lived and breathed equality and inclusiveness for every moment of her life. On a personal level, I grieve for her. We had many conversations and correspondence that concerned our families and life friendships. Ruth was a dear friend, warm and welcoming to my son Jason, my wife Elaine, and our family. Her memory will always live on in our hearts and serve as a shining star to guide us. Her passing is a great loss to me, my family, and of course, the nation. With thanks to Stephen, here's the episode, which I originally broadcast on April 1st, 2019. May it give you hope. In November of 1972, Stephen Weisenfeld, the plaintiff in today's case, which is Ginsburg's fourth oral argument before the Supreme Court, wrote in to his local newspaper with this letter to the editor. To the editor. Your article about widowed men last week prompted me to point out serious inequality in the social security regulations. It's been my misfortune to discover that a male cannot collect social security benefits as a woman can. My wife and I assumed reverse roles. She taught for seven years, the last two at Edison High School. She paid the maximum dollars into social security. Meanwhile, I, for the most part, played homemaker. Last June, she passed away while giving birth to our only child. My son can collect benefits, but because I am not a woman homemaker, I cannot receive those benefits. Had I been paying into Social Security and had I died, my wife would have been able to receive benefits, but male homemakers cannot. I wonder if Gloria Steinem knows about this. Welcome back to the fourth full episode of the Ginsburg Tapes. I'm your host, Lauren Moxley. Stephen Weisenfeld wrote that letter to the editor in the wake of losing his wife, Paula, leaving him with sole responsibility to care for their infant son, Jason Paul. Stephen had met his wife, Paula, in 1969, and the pair quickly fell in love. At the time, Stephen lived in New Jersey, and he was trying his hand at different computer startup businesses after leaving a job at a larger computer corporation. Paula lived in New York City, and she taught school in White Plains, New York. Paula and Stephen were married by the following year, and Paula moved to New Jersey, where she'd teach math at Edison High School. The next year, Paula became pregnant. Paula had a very healthy pregnancy, and she even taught her high school students until the day before she gave birth. With her steady income as a teacher, she had become their small family's primary breadwinner and she hoped to go on to be a school administrator. Stephen, who was still working on his fledgling mini-computer business, planned to serve as the family's primary caretaker when their son, Jason Paul, was born. 
but Paula had an embolism and died giving birth to her son. In the wake of losing the love of his life, Stephen quickly began to feel the challenges of single fatherhood. Some people in his life were advising him to start over. He remembers that Paula's mother advised him to sell he and Paula's home, put Jason Paul up for adoption, and start his life fresh. But Stephen was determined to raise his son on his own. And so he set out to figure out how to make that work, especially because Paula had been um, the primary provider in the family. And Stephen learned that there were these social security benefits for the sole surviving parent of a child, and so he applied for those benefits. And these benefits were only available if you had a very modest income. So the cutoff then was around $2,400 if you wanted to receive full benefits, which would be roughly $14,600 per year in annual income in today's dollars. And they would have provided about $200 a month, which would have allowed Stephen to care for Jason himself, rather than having to work full-time and try to rely on outside help. But the Social Security office turned him down. These are mother's benefits, they said. This is not available to single fathers. Even single fathers whose deceased spouse had paid full Social Security taxes while working as a public school teacher. And it was in the middle of all of this heartbreak and frustration that he read an article in the local newspaper in New Jersey about the challenges that single fathers face. Challenges that he was coming to know all too well. One of Ginsburg's colleagues at Rutgers read Stephen's letter. And the colleague wrote back, saying that while Gloria Steinem likely knew about this mother's benefits law, Stephen might be better served in the courts rather than in Congress. Why don't I introduce you to my former colleague? She's an attorney at the ACLU. The day that Stephen Weisenfeld wrote back that yes, he would appreciate the assistance of the ACLU, he heard from Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It was December 26, 1972, a year and a half after Paula died, and three weeks before Ginsburg's first oral argument before the Supreme Court in Frontiero versus Richardson. And I think Ginsburg must have seen and must have been thinking how she couldn't have designed a case better than Weisenfeld's to serve as a follow-on to Frontiero. In the Frontiero's case, the government automatically provided dependence benefits for the wives of military service members who were men, but denied female military service members those same benefits unless they affirmatively proved that their husbands were dependent on them for over half of their support. And in Weisenfeld's case, the government gave qualifying sole surviving mothers benefits to help care for their minor children but denied those same benefits to identically situated sole surviving fathers. Both in Frontiero and in Weisenfeld, the government framed the law that was being challenged, a law dripping in stereotypes about the proper role of the sexes, as designed to protect women by discriminating benignly in their favor. In Frontiero, the government said that it was discriminating benignly in a woman's favor by automatically giving the wives of military service members certain benefits. And in Weisenfeld, the government will say that it's discriminating benignly in a woman's favor by giving her extra benefits when she loses her husband and must raise a child on her own. But in both cases, the government is totally ignoring the impact of these laws on women who don't fall into traditional sex role stereotypes. In Frontiero's case, they're ignoring the impact of that law on Sharon Frontiero, a military service member who wasn't able to claim dependence benefits for her husband in the same way that the man serving right next to her could for his wife. And in today's case, Paula Weisenfeld paid full social security taxes, just like her male colleagues at Edison High School. But because she had been the family's primary income earner and her husband was poised to be primary caretaker, he was denied the benefits that would have helped the Weisenfeld family had their gender roles been reversed. And Ginsburg knew that the Weisenfeld family story was the perfect way to show the justices how this double-edged sword operated in American law. Ginsburg will show how these mother's benefits perpetuated the stereotype that men belong at work and women at home. And she will try to explain how this kind of sex role stereotyping was outmoded in an America with increasing numbers of dual-income households. Ginsburg won this case before the three-judge panel in the district court in New Jersey. And the case went all the way to the Supreme Court. At the time, Ginsburg was teaching a class on the Equal Rights Amendment at Columbia. 
and she used this case, her favorite case, as a case study. So let's roll the tape from Ginsburg's oral argument from that day. There's a deafening silence for the first several minutes that kind of reminds me of Frontiero when she was arguing as an amicus. But with the benefit of behind-the-scenes notes from the justices that are on hold at the Library of Congress, and 44 years of hindsight, we now know that it was not because the justices weren't listening. They were listening. Even Justice Rehnquist was listening. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Stephen Weisenfeld's case concerns the entitlement of a female wage earner, a female wage earner's family, to social insurance of the same quality as that accorded the family of a male wage earner. Four prime facts of the Weisenfeld family's life situation bear special emphasis. Paula Weisenfeld, the deceased insured worker, was gainfully employed at all times during the seven years immediately preceding her death. Throughout this period, maximum contributions were deducted from her salary and paid to Social Security. During Paula's marriage to Stephen Weisenfeld, both were employed. Neither was attending school, and Paula was the family's principal income earner. In 1972, Paula died, giving birth to her son, Jason Paul, leaving the child's father, Stephen Weisenfeld, with sole responsibility for the care of Jason Paul. For the eight months immediately following his wife's death, and for all but a seven-month period thereafter, Stephen Weisenfeld did not engage in substantial gainful employment. Instead, he devoted himself to the care of the infant, Jason Paul. At issue is the constitutionality of the gender line drawn by 42 U.S.C. 402G, the child in care provision of the Social Security Act. Congress established this child in care insurance in 1939 as part of that year's conversion of Social Security from a system that insured only the worker to a system that provided a family basis of coverage. The specific purpose of 402G was to protect families of deceased insured workers by supplementing the child's benefit provided in 42 U.S.C. 402D, where the deceased insured worker is male, the family is afforded the full measure of protection, a child's benefit under 402D, and a child in care benefit under 402G. Where the deceased worker is female, family protection is subject to a 50% discount. A child in care benefit for survivors of a female insured worker is absolutely excluded even though, as here, the deceased mother was the family's principal breadwinner. This absolute exclusion, based on gender per se, operates to the disadvantage of female workers, their surviving spouses, and their children. It denies the female worker social insurance family coverage of the same quality as the coverage available under the account of a male worker. It denies the surviving spouse of a female worker the opportunity to care personally for his child, an opportunity afforded the surviving spouse of a male worker. And it denies the motherless child an opportunity for parental care afforded the fatherless child. It is Appelli's position that this threefold discrimination violates the constitutional rights of Paula, Stephen, and Jason Paul Weisenfeld to the equal protection of the laws guaranteed them with respect to federal legislation by the Fifth Amendment. So, as you know, on this podcast, we're breaking down all of Ginsburg's oral arguments before the Supreme Court in the 1970s. But it probably won't surprise you to learn, based on the facts of this case, that this case was Ginsburg's absolute favorite. 
And I think that makes a lot of sense because this case epitomizes how Ginsburg's strategy was for true equality between the sexes under law. And she has the opportunity to present this case from the perspective of three very different people. You have Stephen, the plaintiff in this case, a man who, upon the death of his wife, fell into the primary caretaker role. You have Jason Paul, a child who lost his mom and whose dad wants to care for him. And then you have Paula, a woman who had served in the breadwinner role and who I think plays a really interesting part of this case, even though she's passed away. As a public school teacher, Paula paid the maximum contribution to Social Security, just as a man would. But by denying her husband Social Security benefits upon her death, the government is effectively saying that her work is worth less than her male colleagues. And I think that this case really effectively highlights a theme that's emerging in all of these cases. A country's legal system is a reflection of and a perpetuation of its values. And it's not hard to see the value system codified in and perpetuated by this social security law and the incentive structure that it creates. By valuing a woman's work less than a man's, this legal structure disincentivizes women from entering the workforce. And by limiting benefits for single parents of modest means to mothers, to make this about mothers' benefits, this legal structure disincentivizes men from serving as primary caretakers. And by challenging this social security law as unconstitutional, Ginsburg is trying to break down these sex role stereotypes codified in and perpetuated by this law. And remember that the constitutional law that we're dealing with in all of these cases and in this one is basically two extreme tiers of scrutiny. And that's what Ginsburg is going to turn to in the next clip. Remember that at this time, the Supreme Court applied, or at least said that it applied, one of two standards to laws that were challenged under the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. First, there's this really, really low standard called rational basis review, under which almost any law would be upheld. Or there's this really high standard called strict scrutiny review, under which almost any law would be struck down. And technically, at this time, the level of scrutiny that applies is the really, really low one, rational basis review. But, and I think if you're listening back to all of these tapes, you're going to be with me on this. It kind of seems like the court is doing something else in these opinions, something more than rational basis review, but perhaps less than strict scrutiny review, in striking down laws codifying sex role stereotypes. Like in Reed, where the Supreme Court struck down a law requiring men to be preferred to women in the administration of estates. Or Frontiero, where the Supreme Court struck down a law providing unequal dependence benefits for female and male military service members. And even in Kahn, when the Supreme Court upheld a law that they determined was a benign classification in giving female widows but not male widowers a special property tax exemption. And so in the next clip, you'll hear Ginsburg urge the court to use this case to clarify the standard and to raise the bar from that really, really low rational basis review. The care with which the judiciary should assess gender lines drawn by legislation is currently a matter of widespread uncertainty. The District of Columbia Court of Appeals recently observed in Wall D.V. Schlesinger, decided November 20th, 1974, precedent is still evolving and existing decisions of this court are variously interpreted by the lower courts. Appellant had urged in his brief that it would be sufficient if any rationality can be conceived for the overt sex discrimination operating against the Weisenfeld family. But this court acknowledged in Reed v. Reed, 404 U.S., that the legislative objective there in question, reducing probate court workloads, did not lack legitimacy. Yet, in light of the differential based on gender per se, the court required a more substantial relationship between legislative ends and means so that men and women, similarly circumstanced, would be treated alike. Again, 
in the court's 8-1 judgment in Bruntiero v. Richardson, 411 U.S., requiring the same fringe benefits for married men and women in the military, the court evidenced a concern to analyze gender classifications with a view to the modern world and to be wary of gross, archaic, and overbroad generalizations. As in the case at Barr in Frontiero, the underlying assumption was wives are typically dependent, husbands are not. Hence, the statutory scheme in this case, as the scheme in Frontiero, favors one type of family unit over another. And in both cases, the basis for the distinction is that in the favored unit, the husband's employment attracts the benefit in question. Where the breadwinner is male, the family gets more, and where the breadwinner is female, the family gets less. So that exchange was all about the court's ability to create uniformity. And Ginsburg is urging the court to act and to clearly state what standards should apply when a person challenges a law distinguishing on the basis of sex under the Constitution. And she opened that clip by pointing out that the care with which the judiciary should assess gender lines drawn by legislation is currently a matter of widespread uncertainty. And this goes back to something that I talked about in the first episode, that the Supreme Court is best suited to create uniformity under law. And the Supreme Court is best suited to act in a case like this one, where Ginsburg is pointing out that courts don't know what to do. And so you could have a lower court in Arkansas um, treat the same challenge differently than it would in California or Michigan or Montana or Florida or you name it. And so she wants the court to see that not all the courts are acting the same when applying these laws. And she wants them to finally state clearly what standards should apply. And you heard the beginnings of what is going to be come to be known as intermediate scrutiny, which is this intermediate level of review between rational basis review, the very, very low standard, and strict scrutiny review, the very high standard, that will, big spoiler alert, ultimately apply to these types of challenges to laws discriminating on the basis of sex. And in a sort of indirect way, we heard her argue that's the standard that the court already has been applying in all of these sex equality cases. As in Frontiero and Reed, where, as Ginsburg just explained, the court evidenced a concern to analyze gender classifications with a view to the modern world and to be wary of gross, archaic, and overbroad generalizations. In other words, she's saying, court, you've already applied something more than rational basis review to the laws like the ones at issue in this case, in Stephen Weisenfeld's case, where the law is built upon and perpetuated archaic and outdated sex role stereotypes. And so she's trying to compare Stephen Weisenfeld's case to two cases where the law was struck down, where her clients, um, or the client that she was supporting as an amicus, uh, won the case. That's Reed versus Reed and Frontiero. But she also wants to distinguish Stephen Weisenfeld's case from the Supreme Court's two most recent decisions, both of which came out the other way. And so she's starting to see a shift in the tide. And I even read somewhere that she's concerned that Justice Potter Stewart has totally gone over to the other side of the ledger on these sex quality cases. And you're going to hear her distinguish away those bad cases, the two most recent ones, in the next clip. First, there's Kahn, which we know all about from episode two, where the court upheld a property tax exemption granted to a female widow, but not male widowers. And I'll just say as an aside, it's so striking to me how much more um, appealing Stephen Weisenfeld is as a plaintiff than Mel Kahn, the widow who wanted a $15 property tax exemption and doesn't have a, a baby to take care of. And also, the other case she's going to try to distinguish is Schlesinger versus Ballard which was decided the same term. And in Schlesinger, the court upheld a law granting female naval officers four additional years of commissioned service before being discharged than male officers. So the court said that that type of law favoring women is okay. So let's listen to Ginsburg's effort at distinguishing Stephen Weissensfeld's case from these two bad precedents, Kahn and Schlesinger. On B. Shevin, 416 U.S., 
And Schlesinger v. Ballard, this court's most recent ex expression, are viewed by some as reestablishing a slack or cursory review standard, at least when the defender of discrimination packages his argument with a protective or remedial label. Kahn approved Florida's $15 real property tax saving for widows. The decision reflects this court's consistent deference to state policy in areas of local concern, such as state tax systems, domestic relations, zoning, disposition of property within a state's borders. By contrast, national workers' insurance and no issue of local concern is in question here. The differential in Schlesinger v. Ballard, this court pointed out, did not reflect archaic, overbroad generalizations of the kind involved in Frontiero or in the instant case. Indeed, there might have been a certain irony to a ruling in Lieutenant Ballard's favor. To this day, women seeking careers in the uniformed services are barred by federal statute and regulations from enlistment, training, and promotion opportunities open to men. The court's majority thought it a mismatch for federal law to mandate unequal treatment of women officers, denial to them of training and promotion opportunities open to men, a denial not challenged by Lieutenant Ballard, but to ignore that anterior discrimination for promotion and tenure purposes. Perhaps most significantly, Kahn and Ballard are among the very few situations where a discriminatory advantage accorded some women is not readily perceived as a double-edged sword, a weapon that strikes directly against women who choose to be wives and mothers, and at the same time to participate as full and equal individuals in a work-centered world. But there could not be a clearer case than this one of the double-edged sword in operation, of differential treatment accorded similarly situated persons based grossly and solely on gender. So Ginsburg just argued why this case, why Steven Weissenfeld's case, is not like Kahn, because this is not a tax case of local concern, like that Florida property tax exemption in, in, at issue in Kahn, but rather a nationwide federal program. And it's really important for Ginsburg to characterize Kahn this way and to be careful to distinguish this case from Kahn's case. Because some of these justices, some of these men up on this court, might want to read Kahn as basically saying discrimination against men is okay, and that laws designed to benefit women at the expense of men is totally okay. And I'm going to get into this more in the later, but there's some really interesting notes from behind the scenes at conference in writing and in writing this decision that show that some of these justices were definitely moved by Stephen Weisenfeld's compelling story. But others, and we have particular evidence of this for Justice Powell, saw his desire to care for his child as indolent and even more as inherently unmasculine. And this doesn't come to surprise to me at all because I feel like men serving as primary caretakers face this sort of discrimination in 2019, even today in this totally different world. So I can only imagine how radical this was not that long ago in the 1970s. And this sort of surface level tie between Kahn and Weisenfeld, where male plaintiffs are bringing these challenges, was on the top of the mind of obviously Justice Ginsburg, who knew that the justices would be thinking about this, but also Stephen Weisenfeld. And when the Kahn decision came down on April of 1974, Ginsburg was on vacation in Wyoming. And she and Stephen Weisenfeld immediately got on the phone to discuss the implications of Kahn for his case. And she reassured Stephen, your situation is clearly distinguishable. And perhaps if the court had heard your, fa your case first, Mel Kahn's case would have gone in our favor. And Ginsburg also made an effort to distinguish Schlesinger, which gave women more time for a promotion in the Navy. And Ginsburg suggested that the law at issue in Schlesinger is different than the one in this case. 
because it was motivated to genuinely compensate for lack of equal promotional opportunities. And so it's not based on outdated or overbroad generalizations about appropriate sex roles, such as in Frontiero, Reed, and in this case, which epitomizes the double-edged sword of differential treatment for men and women. The next clip is one of my all-time favorite passages in every one of these Ginsburg oral arguments. I think she masterfully weaves together all of these different threads of precedent to show how this case, more than any other yet heard by the court, illustrates the critical importance of the court meaningfully reviewing laws that perpetuate sex role stereotypes. Paula Weisenfeld, in fact, the principal wage earner, is treated as though her years of work were of only secondary value to her family. Stephen Weisenfeld, in fact, the nurturing parent, is treated as though he did not perform that function. And Jason Paul, a motherless infant with a child, with a father, able and willing to provide care for him personally, is treated as an infant not entitled to the personal care of his sole surviving parent. The line drawn is absolute, not merely a more onerous test for one sex than the other, as in Frontiero and in Stanley, the Illinois 405 U.S. And the shutout is more extreme than it was in Reed, where a woman could qualify as administrator if the man who opposed her were less closely related to the decedent. This case, more than any other yet heard by this court, illustrates the critical importance of careful judicial assessment of law-reinforced sex role pigeonholing defended as a remedy. For on any degree of scrutiny that is more than cursory, 402G's conclusive presumption automatically and irrebuttably ranking husband principal breadwinner displays the pattern Justice Brennan identified in Frontiero. In practical effect, laws of this quality help to keep women not on a pedestal, but in a cage. They reinforce, not remedy, women's inferior position in the labor force. Appellant has pointed out that women do not earn as much as men and urges that 402G responds to this condition by rectifying past and present economic discrimination against women. This attempt to wrap a remedial rationale around a 1939 statute originating in and reinforcing traditional sex-based assumptions should attract strong suspicion In fact, Congress had in view male breadwinners, male heads of household, and the women and children dependent upon them. Its attention to the families of insured male workers, their wives and children, is expressed in a scheme that heaps further disadvantage on the woman worker. Far from rectifying economic discrimination against women, the scheme conspicuously discriminates against women workers by discounting the value to their family of their gainful employment. And it intrudes on private decision-making in an area in which the law should maintain strict neutrality. For when federal law provides a family benefit based on a husband's gainful employment, but absolutely bars that benefit based on a wife's gainful employment, the impact is to encourage the traditional division of labor between man and woman to underscore twin assumptions. First, that labor for pay, including attendant benefits, is the prerogative of men. And second, that women, but not men, appropriately reduce their contributions in the working life to care for children. So I'm sure a lot of you saw the movie about Justice Ginsburg um, on the basis of sex, and they showed Ginsburg stutter when she first stepped up to the podium in her very first oral argument, which wasn't in the Supreme Court, but in the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. 
And reflecting on what was different about the movie and reality, Ginsburg told uh, a reporter that she didn't stumble at the outset. And I loved that statement, and it's also true that she didn't stutter in her first oral argument in the Supreme Court that we broke down in episode one, Frontiero versus Richardson. In that case, her command of the material was strong, her voice steady, and slow, so slow. She's so slow in these oral arguments. But listening back now that I've really lived with these tapes, I can tell that her voice wasn't quite there yet. It wasn't this yet. What does this case illustrate? She just posed the critical importance of careful judicial assessment of law-reinforced sex role pigeonholing defended as a remedy. What does limiting sole surviving parents' benefits to mothers do? It gives women money, sure. But in practical effect, laws of this quality help to keep women not on a pedestal, but in a cage. And what was Congress's purpose in enacting this statute, she asks. In fact, Congress had in view male breadwinners, male heads of household, and the women and children dependent upon them. What's the impact of this assumption codified in law? To encourage the traditional division of labor between a man and a woman, and to perpetuate two assumptions. That labor for pay is man's prerogative, and that women should reduce their contributions in order to care for children. To Ginsburg Tapes listeners, these points are becoming all too familiar. But I think it's critical to situate ourselves in time and remember just how revolutionary these ideas were in 1975, over 40 years ago. There's a bunch of interesting primary evidence showing just how unbelievable this was to everyone, to the lawyers, the judges, and the law clerks. How unbelievable it was that Stephen Weissenfeld wanted to stay home and care for his young son. In the trial court in this case, lawyers for the government literally argued that Stephen Weissenfeld did not present an actual case or controversy because it was not credible that he wanted to serve as a primary caretaker for his son rather than work. The government's brief in the Supreme Court, which was led by Solicitor General Robert Bork, carefully framed the argument to focus the dispute on Stephen Weissenfeld's desire for mother's benefits. The brief suggests that Paula was serving as breadwinner because Stephen was getting an education. Now that he had, he should start working. And the brief doesn't address and really downplays Paula Weisenfeld's entitlement to her own benefits. Many of the justices were equally incredulous. A manuscript on file at the Library of Congress reveals that when a majority opinion got circulated, Justice Blackman, who, remember, is a relatively middle-of-the-road-slash-liberal judge and the author of Roe v. Wade, annotated the portion of the fact section describing stay-at-home fathers with question marks and exclamation points. Next to the part of the fact section stating that Stephen Weissenfeld may well have stayed at home with his son even if his wife was alive is large, all caps, WOW, scribbled out with an exclamation point. And there's more to come on what Blackman thought of this case after listening to Ginsburg at oral argument at the end of this episode. In the next clip, Ginsburg will argue that the government is inconsistent when it defends laws perpetuating sex role stereotyping, like in this case. She's going to talk about Title IX, which had been recently enacted in 1972. And in regulations implementing Title IX, this same part of the government, Casper Weinberger, who's the Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, argued that recipients of federal funds cannot withhold from the spouse of a female wage earner any benefit that's provided to the spouse of a male wage earner. So it's a different law than the one at issue in this case, but Ginsburg is trying to show how the government, how Congress, has adopted the principle that she's urging here in more recent legislation. On another day, the pernicious impact of gender lines like the one drawn by 402G was precisely and accurately discerned by appellant in common with every government agency genuinely determined to break down artificial barriers and hindrances to women's economic advancement, appellant has instructed that employers' fringe benefit and pension schemes must not presume, as 402G does, 
that husband is head of household or principal wage earner. It is surely irrational to condemn this sex line as discriminating against women when it appears in an employer's pension scheme while asserting that it rectifies such discrimination when it appears in workers' social insurance. You say the appellant uh, has taken these inconsistent positions. I assume he was, it wasn't just his idea uh, uh, he was, promulgating that uh, for private pension schemes, but that he was carrying out his understanding of a federal statute. He was carrying out inconsistent congressional commands, guidelines that he issued pursuant to Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972, right. forbid recipients of federal money from making distinctions of this kind. So you just heard Justice Potter Stewart express skepticism that the Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare is really being inconsistent, as Ginsburg argued, in carrying out different statutes, in carrying out the Social Security law at issue here, and the Title IX law. And I kind of have to agree with Justice Stewart that calling the government's position inconsistent is a little bit of pulling a fast one. Here, the government is interpreting a Social Security law, not Title IX. And just as a point of background, Title IX is a federal civil rights law that was passed as part of the Education Amendments of 1972. And Title IX prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex in any federally funded education program or activity. And so I think Ginsburg was right to agree and clarify her position, which is one that makes a lot of sense. Title IX is a recent congressional pronouncement and it disfavors the type of unequal distribution of benefits at issue in this case. And that's a point worth making. Congress, much more recent to this oral argument, has shown a concern for laws that perpetuate outdated gender role stereotypes. And so Ginsburg will now argue why the government's proffered rationale for this law is not genuinely compensatory. And what that means for female primary breadwinners like Paula Weissenfeld and the children of sole surviving spouse fathers like Jason Paul. The dialogue between Ginsburg and the justices will also shift to pragmatic concerns. The justices are wondering, how much is this going to set us back? How much is it going to cost to extend mother's benefits to fathers as well? This attitude is shored up and reinforced by laws of the 402G variety. Laws that tell a woman her employment is less valuable to and supportive of the family than the employment of a male worker. Surely Paula Weisenfeld would find unfathomable this attempt to cast a compensatory cloak over the denial to her family of benefits available to the family of a male insured. Nor does appellant's rationalization for discrimination even attempt to explain why Jason Paul, child of a fully insured deceased worker, can have the personal care of his sole surviving parent only if the deceased wage earning parent was male. Appellant has asserted that providing child and care benefits under a female worker's account would involve fiscal considerations. The amount involved is considerably less than was indicated some moments ago. He estimates the cost for this particular benefit to be 0.01% of taxable payroll in the appendix at 16, and other differentials are not now before this court. At the same time, he maintains... Are you familiar, Ms. Ginsburg, with the uh, little... uh chart on the top of page 15 of the appendix? Yes, I am. Could you tell us uh, which one of these are we talking about? Uh, We're talking about... Uh, which number? Let's see. Three? We're talking about three, that's right. Number of persons affected, 15,000, estimated benefit. 20 million. 20 million, right. That's, and that is the only one we're talking about in this case. And the, well, of course, there is a somewhat inconsistent argument made, and that is that the bulk of widowed fathers would not qualify for child and care benefits in any event, according to appellant, because unlike Stephen Weisenfeld, 
they would not devote themselves to child care, but rather to gainful employment. Budgetary considerations... The children, the children have to be under, what, 18? Yes. So child has to be a child entitled to child's benefits under the Act. Which means, among other things, that he's under 18. Yes. Budgetary considerations to justify invidious discrimination should fare no better in this case than such consider considerations fared in cases in which relatively larger cost savings were involved. I talked about this again in the last episode, but remember that Justice Stewart once bartered his vote for strict scrutiny in Frontiero versus Richardson, and he seemed like he might be part of a five majority of justices who'd rule on Ginsburg's side in these sex equality cases. But he's a seemingly growing skeptic of sex equality, and he just expressed some concern in questioning Ginsburg about what would happen if more laws providing special benefits to women are made gender neutral. In aggregate, is this going to cost the government a lot of money? And as in past cases, Ginsburg is arguing that the Constitution requires a sex-neutral provision of benefits, and that budgetary policy, like administrative convenience, simply cannot provide a fair and substantial basis for a scheme that establishes two classes of workers. The final few minutes of Ginsburg's oral argument similarly focuses on these pragmatic issues fiscal considerations, the design of the statute, and the appropriate remedy. And I'll skip another exchange in the tape as to whether 18 years old is too high of an age cutoff for these benefits for sole surviving parents, as older teens can care for themselves, and the $200 a month is less needed for parents of older children. And we've talked about the fact that as a practical matter, justices are often thinking about other cases on their docket that may have some relation to your case. And I think we talked about that the most in episode two, when the Supreme Court was poised to hear an affirmative action case, Defunis, and Ginsburg had to explain why her case was different in kind, factually, as the arguments had some surface-level overlap. And the justices were probably focused on this age requirement because of another case before them this term, Stanton v. Stanton, which involved a constitutional challenge to a Utah law mandating that a divorced parent provide for a son until he's 21, but a daughter until she's 18. And in response, Ginsburg explained the mechanics of this benefit scheme. This social security benefit for single parents had a low income requirement. If you earned more than $2,400 per year, $1 of the $200 a month benefit is removed for every additional $2 you earn. So if you earn $2,402 a year, you would only get $199 per month in benefits, and it goes from there. And so I'm going to cut through some of this back and forth to what Ginsburg ultimately says about remedy, what the court should do when it hopefully decides this law is unconstitutional. And as in prior cases, she's going to urge the court to make this law sex neutral. Unequal treatment of male and female workers surely is not a vital part of the congressional plan. Withdrawal of benefits from female parents who now receive them would conflict with the primary statutory objectives to compensate the family unit for the loss of the insured individual and to facilitate parental care of the child. Under the circumstances, extension of benefits to the surviving spouse of female insured workers, to the father who devotes himself to child rearing is the only suitable remedy. It accords with the express remedial preference of Congress in all recent measures eliminating gender-based differentials, for example, 5 U.S.C. 7152, cited at pages 39 to 40 of our brief. And with this court's precedent, in such cases as U.S. Department of Agriculture v. Moreno, 413 U.S., New Jersey Welfare Rights Organization against Cahill, 411 U.S., and Frontiero v. Richardson, 411 U.S. So you may remember this, but back in episode two, when we were talking about Con versus Shevin, Mel Kahn's case about the property tax exemption in Florida, we discussed remedy 
and that's what a court decides to do about an issue once they've decided it. And in Khan, we talked about how the justices were hesitant to legislate from the bench by making the property tax exemption sex-neutral through a judicial opinion. And here, the court is again asking, okay, so say we declare this law unconstitutional. What do you suggest that we do? And Ginsburg relied on several cases where the court made such a change based on a constitutional challenge, including in Frontiero, the case from episode one, where the Supreme Court struck down the unequal dependence benefits scheme for military service members. In the final clip of Ginsburg's oral argument, she'll put to rest claims that women get more from Social Security than they put in on net. She'll explain that women tend to live longer, and that's the reason for any aggregate additional benefits for women. I did want to comment very briefly on the point made with respect to women receiving Social Security benefits that exceed the amount of their contribution. The reason for this, the prime reason, of course, is that women live longer than men. Most benefits are paid to retirement age beneficiaries. And women happen to be 58% of the population of persons over 65. That increases in time. They're about 54.5% of the 65-year-olds, 58.5% of the 75-year-olds, and about 64.5% of the 85-year-olds. But the critical point here is that payments to the elderly are based on the individual's lifespan, not on his or her sex so that if a man should live to be 100, he will continue to receive benefits and he won't be told, well, too bad, you should have died earlier. Only women receive payments for that length of time. In sum, Apelli respectfully requests that the judgment below be affirmed, thereby establishing that under this nation's fundamental law, the woman worker's national social insurance is no less valuable to her family than is the social insurance of the working man. So that was Ginsburg's oral argument in her favorite case, Weinberger versus Weissenfeld. And I read that as soon as oral argument wrapped, as soon as the government finished as well, Ginsburg hopped on a train to teach her afternoon class at Columbia, skipping the opportunity to revel in her Supreme Court oral argument and network in DC. The government was represented by Keith Jones, who's a lawyer in the Solicitor General's office, which is the part of the government that represents the government in the Supreme Court. And this is the same Keith Jones who has my all-time favorite sexist zinger in all of these cases. And it's in the next tape that we're going to be listening to, which breaks down Calfiano versus Goldfarb. But if you can't wait for that tape, um, it's in the five-minute preview of the podcast, where I mashed up some of the all-time best and worst clips from these arguments. Basically, he says something like, feminism is in fashion and that Ginsburg is riding on its skirt tails. So ridiculous. So the government's argument in this case was twofold. First, they argue that there's no discrimination here against Paula Weissenfeld. There's no lack of equal pay. And Congress isn't obliged to provide a covered female employee with the same benefits that it provides to a male. The court summarized the government's argument on this point as follows. An employee has no right whatever to be treated equally with other employees as regards to the benefits which flow from his or her employment. And the second part of the government's argument is that there's no discrimination here against Stephen Weissenfeld, or at least no discrimination that rises to the level of being unconstitutional. The Social Security law is protective legislation, reasonably designed to compensate for women's lack of equal economic opportunities. Men don't face those challenges, and therefore, the government has presented a sufficient justification for this sex classification, and it should be upheld as constitutional. And in support of this second point, the government relies on a pretty reductive view of Khan, that case that we focused on in episode two, which Ginsburg lost, on behalf of a male plaintiff. So I'll play a quick clip to give you a sense of the government's argument in Weissenfeld. For that reason, I, I now turn to the appellee's alternative argument, which is based upon the contention that the denial of benefits to a widower constitutes 
a denial of equal protection to men is an impermissible discrimination against men. That argument, it seems to us, is foreclosed by this court's decision in Kahn against Chevin. In that case, this court upheld a special Florida property tax exemption that was granted only to widows and not to widowers. The objective of that legislation, like that of the statute here, was to ameliorate in some degree the economic difficulties that uniquely confront the lone woman who has lost her husband. The court, in that opinion, recited statistics showing that the average female worker earned approximately 40% of the income of the average male worker. And the court noted that this disparity in the economic capabilities would be exacerbated in the case of a widow vis-a-vis a widower, and that the difference in earning power between a widow and widower was probably even greater than that between women and men generally. Mr. Justice Douglas, writing for the court in that case, observed that while the widower can usually continue in his occupation, in many cases the widow will suddenly find herself forced into a job market with which she is unfamiliar, and in which, because of her former economic dependency, she will have fewer skills to offer. And it's also clear that the discrimination inherent in such a statute between widows and widowers is not impermissible. So this argument from the government is becoming pretty familiar to us as TGT listeners. Basically, he's arguing that legislation that's designed to protect women but not men is okay. And when a law accords special privileges to women but not men, courts should not examine those classifications with any sort of extra scrutiny. Which of course totally undermines Ginsburg's central point, which is that any short-term benefit gained from so-called protective legislation like extra benefits in this case, or an extra property tax exemption in con, doesn't actually benefit women in the long term, because what it does is reflect existing values and perpetuate existing values that women belong at home, rather than giving women the choice, and men the choice, to decide the nature of their participation in American life, both at home and in the workforce. The court sided with Ginsburg, and the decision was unanimous. For the first time in all of these sex equality cases, Ginsburg even got Justice Rehnquist's vote. But before I get ahead of myself and into the court's decision, I think we should talk about what happened at conference, because the notes from conference for this case are fascinating. So in the last episode, I talked a little bit about diversity in hiring, and how for this term, this 1974 term, Justice Brennan hired his first female law clerk, Marsha Berzone, who went on to become a judge on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. In a memo to her boss, Justice Brennan, Marsha argued that the goal of the statute is to provide for families. She argued that it would undermine congressional intent to deny this benefit to Paula Weissenfeld's family on account of her husband's status as the sole surviving parent. And we know from notes at conference that Justice Brennan told his colleagues just that that the goal of the law was to provide for families, and we need to strike down this law. Justice Brennan immediately had the votes of the pre-Nixon appointees who were available for this case, Justices Marshall, White, and Stewart. Justice Douglas was still on the court. He's an FDR appointee, and he was generally on the side of sex equality, although remember he wrote the decision in Con, and I speculated that it probably had something to do with his mother's experience as a widow. But Justice Douglas had failing health, and so he didn't participate in this decision. But what about the Nixon appointees, Chief Justice Berger and Justices Powell, Blackman, and Rehnquist? Eventually, each came over to the majority, forming a unanimous opinion. And six of the justices joined Justice Brennan's majority opinion, with Chief Justice Berger and Justice Blackman signing on. The story behind Justice Blackman's vote and his decision to join Justice Brennan's majority is so interesting. And I've found a lot of this through Linda Greenhouse's work, as she's written a biography of Justice Blackman, and she's really spent a lot of time examining and breaking down his papers, because he kept copious notes. Remember that Justice Blackman is the author of Roe vs. Wade, and he's become such a feminist icon. 
but he hasn't been voting with Justices Brennan, Marshall, and White in these sex equality cases. And indeed, as, just, as Linda Greenhouse has reported, Justice Blackman's notes reveal that he initially saw Stephen Weissenfeld's case as an easy example of the ways in which laws can classify between men and women by according women with special privileges or special advantages. He wrote in his notes before conference that this social security law didn't raise any special problems. And if there was going to be legal change on this issue, it should come from Congress, not the court. He wrote, that is where it belongs if, it, if changing times are equalizing income between men and women. So long as the objective of the differential is to alleviate need, that is to alleviate a woman's need, I suspect that we shall have to hold the differential is not unconstitutional. But Blackman changed his mind. And we can tell from his notes that he changed his mind after listening to Ginsburg's oral argument that we listen to today. In his notes during argument, he wrote that the classification in the social security scheme seemed useless. And even though he only gave Ginsburg a B for her performance, because remember he keeps that graded diary of the lawyers that appear before him, he decided not only to give his vote to Ginsburg's side, but also to join Justice Brennan's opinion. Justice Brennan's opinion is really interesting. He knew that he wouldn't have the votes for strict scrutiny, so he wrote the opinion in a way that kept a unanimous court and six of the eight voting justices joining his opinion. Justice Brennan wrote that the law not only failed to receive for Paula's family the same protection which similarly situated male worker would have received, but she was also deprived of a portion of her own earnings in order to contribute to the fund out of which benefits would be paid to others. Justice Brennan rejected the government's argument that the law is justified because it is protective legislation. He wrote that Congress was focused on enabling the surviving parent to remain at home to care for a child, reflecting Marsha Berzon's memo as well. And he wrote that the government restricted mothers' benefits to women, not to compensate them for discrimination in the labor market and therefore encourage their return, but because the government believed that women should not be required to work and that men should be. He wrote that this was an overbroad and archaic generalization and it is entirely irrational based on the purposes of the statute. Justice Powell wrote a super interesting concurrence, and it was joined by Chief Justice Berger. Basically, the purpose of this concurrence, as far as, as, far as I can tell, is to reiterate traditional gender and masculinity norms. According to a memo that's on file with the Powell Papers at Washington and Lee School of Law, in private, Justice Powell actually expressed disgust with the idea that men would want to receive mother's benefits. Just like Justice Brennan, he had hired his first female law clerk this term, the term of the woman, Penny Clark. Clark wrote to her boss that she suspected that there were few men who would take advantage of the mother's benefits at issue here. And Justice Powell responded that I would hope so, though the ever-increasing welfare roles, even in prosperous times, suggest a high level of indolence. Justice Powell basically did not want to give a stamp of approval to the majority opinion, which he thought was gratuitous in its treatment of traditional gender and masculinity norms. Here's a footnote from his concurrence. In light of the long experience to the contrary, one may doubt that fathers generally will forego work and remain at home to care for children to the same extent that mothers may make this choice. Under the current statutory program, however, the payment of benefits is not conditioned on the surviving parent's decision to remain at home. Justice Rehnquist also gave his vote to Ginsburg's side, but he wrote a separate concurrence. Remember that Justice Rehnquist was the sole dissenter in Frontiero and the sole dissenter in Taylor v. Louisiana, so Ginsburg was very proud of his vote in this case. His concurrence reasoned that this scheme hurt the child of the contributing worker. A few weeks after receiving the great news, Ginsburg had a party to celebrate the victory in Weinberger versus Weissenfeld. Jason Paul, who was then three, attended the party, and Ginsburg was so obviously fond of these clients. After the party, she wrote a letter to Stephen, telling him just how proud he should be of Jason Paul. Even after the case wrapped, Ginsburg and the Weissenfeld family stayed in close touch. Ginsburg gave Jason Paul advice as he was applying to law schools and later became an attorney. And she even performed Stephen Weissenfeld's wedding when he got married after 40 years of bachelorhood. 
in the Supreme Court. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you liked it, please rate and review it and subscribe in the iTunes store. Every positive review really helps viewers find the show. I'd like to thank Michael Schoenwold for letting me take over our apartment for my recording studio and also for serving as a voiceover actor for Steven Weissenfeld and his letter to the editor. I'd also like to thank my good friend, brilliant lawyer, dedicated feminist, and book club leader, Melissa Shu for her feedback on a draft of this episode. If you ever have any questions, just shoot me an email at ginsburgtapes at gmail.com. And you can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Ginsburg Tapes. I hope everyone has a wonderful April. Talk to you next month.